Chapter Seven of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Seven. After viewing various parts of the city, intruding into churches and diving into alleys, I returned. The rest of the day I spent chiefly in my chamber, reflecting on my new condition, surveying my apartment, its presses and closets. And conjecturing on the causes of appearances. At dinner and supper, I was alone. Venturing to inquire of the servant where his master and mistress were, I was answered that they were engaged. I did not question him as to the nature of their engagement, though it was a fertile source of curiosity. Next morning at breakfast, I again met Welbeck and the lady. The incidents were nearly those of the preceding morning. If it were not that the lady exhibited tokens of somewhat greater uneasiness, when she left us, Welbeck sank into apparent meditation. I was at a loss whether to retire or remain where I was. At last, however, I was on the point of leaving the room when he broke silence and began a conversation with me. He put questions to me, the obvious scope of which was to know my sentiments on moral topics. I had no motives to conceal my opinions, and therefore delivered them with frankness. At length, he introduced allusions to my own history, and made more particular inquiries on that head. Here I was not equally frank, yet I did not feign anything, but merely dealt in generals. I had acquired notions of propriety on this head, perhaps somewhat fastidious. Minute details respecting our own concerns are apt to weary all but the narrator himself. I said thus much, and the truth of my remark was eagerly assented to. With some marks of hesitation and after various preliminaries, my companion hinted that my own interest, as well as his, Enjoined upon me silence to all but himself on the subject of my birth and early adventures. It was not likely that while in his service my circle of acquaintance would be large or my intercourse with the world frequent, but in my communication with others he requested me to speak rather of others than of myself. This request, he said, might appear singular to me, but he had his reasons for making it. Which it was not necessary at present to disclose, though when I should know them, I should readily acknowledge their validity. I scarcely knew what answer to make. I was willing to oblige him. I was far from expecting that any exigence would occur, making disclosure my duty. The employment was productive of pain more than of pleasure, and the curiosity that would uselessly seek a knowledge of my past life. Was no less impertinent than the loquacity that would uselessly communicate that knowledge. I readily promised, therefore, to adhere to his advice. This assurance afforded him evident satisfaction, yet it did not seem to amount to quite as much as he wished. He repeated in stronger terms the necessity there was for caution. He was far from suspecting me to possess an impertinent and talkative disposition, or that in my eagerness to expatiate on my own concerns, I should overstep the limits of politeness. But this was not enough. 
I was to govern myself by a persuasion that the interests of my friend and myself would be materially affected by my conduct. Perhaps I ought to have allowed these insinuations to breed suspicion in my mind, but, conscious as I was of the benefits which I had received from this man, prone from my inexperience to rely upon professions and confide in appearances, and unaware that I could be placed in any condition in which mere silence respecting myself could be injurious or criminal, I made no scruple to promise compliance with his wishes. Nay, I went further than this. I desired to be accurately informed as to what it was proper to conceal. He answered that my silence might extend to everything anterior to my arrival in the city, and my being incorporated with his family. Here our conversation ended, and I retired to ruminate on what had happened. I derived little satisfaction from my reflections. I began now to perceive inconveniences that might arise from this precipitate promise. Whatever should happen in consequence of my being immured in the chamber, and of the loss of my clothes and of the portrait of my friend, I had bound myself to silence. These inquietudes, however, were transient. I trusted that these events would operate auspiciously, but my curiosity was now awakened as to the motives which Welbeck could have for exacting from me this concealment. To act under the guidance of another, and to wander in the dark, ignorant whither my path tended, and what effects might flow from my agency, was a new and irksome situation. From these thoughts I was recalled by a message from Welbeck. He gave me a folded paper which he requested me to carry to number blank, South 4th Street. Inquire, said he, for Mrs. Wentworth, in order merely to ascertain the house, for you need not ask to see her. Merely give the letter to the servant and retire. Excuse me for imposing this service upon you. It is of too great moment to be trusted to a common messenger. I usually perform it myself, but I am at present otherwise engaged. I took the letter and set out to deliver it. This was a trifling circumstance, yet my mind was full of reflections on the consequences that might flow from it. I remembered the directions that were given, but construed them in a manner different, perhaps, from Welbeck's expectations or wishes. He had charged me to leave the billet with the servant, who happened to answer my summons, but had he not said that the message was important, insomuch that it could not be entrusted to common hands? He had permitted, rather than enjoined, me to dispense with seeing the lady, and this permission I conceived to be dictated merely by regard to my convenience. It was incumbent on me, therefore, to take some pains to deliver the script into her own hands. I arrived at the house and knocked. A female servant appeared. Her mistress was upstairs. She would tell her if I wished to see her, and meanwhile invited me to enter the parlor. I did so, and the girl retired to inform her mistress that one waited for her. I ought to mention that my departure from the directions which I had received was, in some degree, owing to an inquisitive temper. I was eager after knowledge, and was disposed to profit by every opportunity to survey the interior of dwellings, 
and converse with their inhabitants. I scanned the walls, the furniture, the pictures. Over the fireplace was a portrait in oil of a female. She was elderly and matron-like. Perhaps she was the mistress of this habitation, and the person to whom I should immediately be introduced. Was it a casual suggestion, or was there an actual resemblance between the strokes of the pencil which executed this portrait and that of Clavering? However that be, the sight of this picture revived the memory of my friend and called up a fugitive suspicion that this was the production of his skill. I was busily revolving this idea when the lady herself entered. It was the same whose portrait I had been examining. She fixed scrutinizing and powerful eyes upon me. She looked at the superscription of the letter which I presented, and immediately resumed her examination of me. I was somewhat abashed by the closeness of her observation, and gave tokens of this state of mind which did not pass unobserved. They seemed instantly to remind her that she behaved with too little regard to civility. She recovered herself and began to peruse the letter. Having done this, her attention was once more fixed upon me. She was evidently desirous of entering into some conversation, but seemed at a loss in what manner to begin. This situation was new to me and was productive of no small embarrassment. I was preparing to take my leave when she spoke, though not without considerable hesitation. "'This letter is from Mr. Welbeck. You are his friend, I presume, perhaps a relation?' I was conscious that I had no claim to either of these titles, and that I was no more than his servant. My pride would not allow me to acknowledge this, and I merely said, "'I live with him at present, madam.' I imagined— that this answer did not perfectly satisfy her, yet she received it with a certain air of acquiescence. She was silent for a few minutes, and then rising said, "'Excuse me, sir, for a few minutes. I will write a few words to Mr. Welbeck.' So saying, she withdrew. I returned to the contemplation of the picture. From this, however, my attention was quickly diverted by a paper that lay on the mantel. A single glance was sufficient to put my blood into motion. I started and laid my hand upon the well-known packet. It was that which enclosed the portrait of Clavering. I unfolded and examined it with eagerness. By what miracle came it hither? It was found, together with my bundle, two nights before. I had despaired of ever seeing it again, and yet here was the same portrait enclosed in the selfsame paper. I have forborne to dwell upon the regret amounting to grief with which I was affected in consequence of the loss of this precious relic. My joy on thus speedily and unexpectedly regaining it is not easily described. For a time I did not reflect that to hold it thus in my hand was not sufficient to entitle me to repossession. I must acquaint this lady with the history of this picture and convince her of my ownership. But how was this to be done? Was she connected in any way by friendship or by consanguinity with that unfortunate youth? If she were, some information as to his destiny would be anxiously sought. I did not just then perceive any impropriety in imparting it. 
If it came into her hands by accident, still it will be necessary to relate the mode in which it was lost in order to prove my title to it. I now heard her descending footsteps and hastily replaced the picture on the mantel. She entered, and, presenting me a letter, desired me to deliver it to Mr. Welbeck. I had no pretext for deferring my departure, but was unwilling to go without obtaining possession of the portrait. An interval of silence and irresolution succeeded. I cast significant glances at the spot where it lay, and at length mustered up my strength of mind, and, pointing to the paper, "'Madam,' said I, "'there is something which I recognize to be mine. I know not how it came into your possession, but so lately, as the day before yesterday, it was in mine. I lost it by a strange accident, and as I deem it of inestimable value, I hope you will have no objection to restore it.' During this speech the lady's countenance exhibited marks of the utmost perturbation. "'Your picture!' she exclaimed. "'You lost it! How? Where? Did you know that person? What has become of him?' "'I knew him well,' said I. "'That picture was executed by himself. He gave it to me with his own hands, and, till the moment I unfortunately lost it, it was my dear and perpetual companion.' "'Good heaven!' she exclaimed with increasing vehemence. "'Where did you meet with him? What has become of him? Is he dead or alive?' These appearances sufficiently showed me that Clavering and this lady were connected by some ties of tenderness. I answered that he was dead, that my mother and myself were his attendants and nurses, and that this portrait was his legacy to me. This intelligence melted her into tears, and it was some time before she recovered strength enough to resume the conversation. She then inquired, "'When and where was it that he died? How did you lose this portrait? It was found wrapped in some coarse clothes lying in a stall in the market-house on Saturday evening. Two negro women, servants of one of my friends, strolling through the market, found it and brought it to their mistress, who, recognizing the portrait, sent it to me. To whom did that bundle belong? Was it yours? These questions reminded me of the painful predicament in which I now stood. I had promised Welbeck to conceal from every one my former condition, but to explain in what manner this bundle was lost, and how my intercourse with Clavering had taken place, was to violate this promise. It was possible, perhaps, to escape the confession of the truth by equivocation. Falsehoods were easily invented, and might lead her far away from my true condition, but I was wholly unused to equivocation. Never yet had a lie polluted my lips. I was not weak enough to be ashamed of my origin. This lady had an interest in the fate of Clavering, and might justly claim all the information which I was able to impart. Yet to forget the compact which I had so lately made, and an adherence to which might possibly be in the highest degree beneficial to me and to Welbeck, I was willing to adhere to it, provided falsehood could be avoided. These thoughts rendered me silent. 
The pain of my embarrassment amounted almost to agony. I felt the keenest regret at my own precipitation in claiming the picture. Its value to me was altogether imaginary. The affection which this lady had borne the original, whatever was the source of that affection, would prompt her to cherish the copy, and however precious it was in my eyes, I should cheerfully resign it to her. In the confusion of my thoughts an expedient suggested itself sufficiently inartificial and bold. It is true, madam, what I have said. I saw him breathe his last. This is his only legacy. If you wish it, I willingly resign it, but this is all that I can now disclose. I am placed in circumstances which render it improper to say more." These words were not uttered very distinctly, and the lady's vehemence hindered her from noticing them. She again repeated her interrogations, to which I returned the same answer. At first she expressed the utmost surprise at my conduct. From this she descended to some degree of asperity. She made rapid allusions to the history of Clavering. He was the son of the gentleman who owned the house in which Welbeck resided. He was the object of immeasurable fondness and indulgence. He had sought permission to travel, and, this being refused by the absurd timidity of his parents, he had twice been frustrated in attempting to embark for Europe clandestinely. They ascribed his disappearance to a third and successful attempt of this kind, and had exercised anxious and unwearied diligence in endeavouring to trace his footsteps. All their efforts had failed. One motive for their returning to Europe was the hope of discovering some traces of him, as they entertained no doubt of his having crossed the ocean. The vehemence of Mrs. Wentworth's curiosity as to those particulars of his life and death may be easily conceived. My refusal only heightened this passion. Finding me refractory to all her efforts, she at length dismissed me in anger. End of chapter 7